0: Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental.
1: Hello and welcome to the show. This is part two of our coverage of Marjorie Merriweather Post. We strongly suggest that you stop here and go back to part one. But in case you're already running or knitting and just want to press on, let's give you a teeny tiny little recap. Marjorie Post grew up in the Midwest in the household of an entrepreneurial father who ended up creating one of the biggest cereal product empires of all time. So obviously the money came rolling in. She became a debutante. She married one guy who was of the right family but was not right for her and is now married to E.F. Hutton.
0: Because when E.F. Hutton talks, everyone listens. (laughs) Marjorie and E.F., who she calls Ned, have developed a lifestyle. They go from their estate on Long Island to their estate in the Adirondacks to a little place she built called Mar-a-Lago. It's a society year. They go from one place to the next to the next. We left the couple last on their yacht in the harbor of Gloucester, Massachusetts. Marjorie has investigated a company she discovered there that produced Frosted Foods. She was encouraging her husband to buy it, and he was hemming and hawing. The company was owned by one Clarence Birdseye. He was resistant, but he did understand that it had been Mr.
1: Post's dream to parlay his success with Postum and his assorted cereals into a wider empire okay, yes, you're right. We should acquire other companies. We will diversify. That is a great idea. And that is just what we will do. But we cannot do it from Battle Creek because no real business is done in Battle Creek. We are going to relocate the headquarters to New York. And so they did. And they began by acquiring a little company called the Jello Corporation. People loved this, loved it for 10 cents. And later it was cents. You, yes, you can replicate all of those highfalutin desserts that you see in the society write-ups and ladies' magazines. Because, honestly, not everyone has a chef to spend all day boiling up calves' feet for oh. gelatin. Believe it or not. <laughs> Jell-O, in its little box, makes you a chef and it makes you an artist. So Heavy was the emotional power of jello that it carried the spirit of invention right on through the 1970s. Any collection of old cookbooks, especially church cookbooks, can tell you how important jello was. I am interested actually in your own jello recipe stories. There is a recipe in this cookbook that I just got from a thrift store that has Bloody Mary aspic. I am determined to try it.
0: <laughs> Doesn't alcohol not make it? solidify or is that just freeze well there
1: is a pretty famous concoction called a jello shot it doesn't actually have vodka in it it's just
0: bloody mary oh. flavors oh then what's the point <laughs> i'm sorry i don't like bloody Marys, so it sounds mm. gross to me but i'm not a jello gal anyway okay. well
1: i think we can all agree jello was an inspired first acquisition but it wasn't mm-hmm. the last
0: one No, over the next several years, the Postum Company started finding all of these pre-packaged foods and buying their companies. They bought Calumet baking powder, Swan's Down cake flour, Minute tapioca, Baker's chocolate, Log Cabin, Hellman's,
1: yes, Hellman's, Sanka, what a competitor, it's good for the business, he said, and Maxwell House coffee. Marjorie objected at first. Coffee is like taking dope, she said. And her husband says, coffee is like printing money. (laughs) Well, under EF's management during those years, they had almost $60 million in sales in a year. I mean, that is nothing, nothing to sneeze at. Uh -uh. But Marjorie never forgot bird's eye. And her intrigue about the frosted foods that he had been producing. And so it kind of became a family joke that at breakfast, she would say, have you bought bird's eye yet? Anytime <laughs> he annoyed her, have you bought bird's eye yet? I made a mistake. Yes, but have you bought bird's eye yet? It was super annoying. <laughs> and finally... In 1929, after half a decade of this, quote, family joke, doesn't seem that funny after that many years, the Postum Company acquired the Birdseye Company, but for more than double what they could have paid not too many years before.
0: A fact that Marjorie
1: never let Ned
0: forget. (laughs) The company,
1: which... Was now really an umbrella corporation with a lot of generally non competing branded products under one umbrella. Decided to change its name from the Postum Company to the General
0: Foods Corporation. I feel like there should be a clanging of symbols right now. Ta da! (laughs) (laughs) Well, so
1: the money machine was over here on the left printing money. And the entire decade of the 1920s was just with activities and um, assorted segments of her life were just so lively (laughs) that we decided that there at the beginning, we talked about what was happening with the post-em company. And now we're just going to move a little into the personal side.
0: Starting off their personal side, right at the very beginning in 1923, 36-year-old Marjorie gave birth to a child, a little girl they named Nadina Marjorie Hutton. Mm -hmm. They called her Dini for short, and she joined her other two sisters, two teenage daughters, and an infant, and then all this other stuff that's happening.
1: <laughs> I just learned that Gordon Ramsay has four children, I want to say between 23 and 18, and then he has a one-year-old. Wow. He and his wife, and I cannot remember her name, it's something cute like Tana or Tanya. Anyway, um, they have five children, but the last one is so much younger than the first one.
0: Well, I had a big gap in my kids. There was a six-year gap between my youngest and the next one, just how life worked out. So in
1: 1927, her eldest daughter, whose name is Adelaide, married the,
0: quote, right man with the right background. When Adelaide got married, she wore a veil that Marjorie had bought years before. It originally had been worn at the wedding of Princess Stephanie of Belgium and Crown Prince Rudolf of Austria-Hungary, who we talked about in the Empress Sissy episode.
1: There is another Empress Sissy episode tie-in. She owned the emperor maximilian emerald and emperor maximilian was um, an unfortunate nobleman related to sissy by marriage who was installed as the emperor of mexico
0: mm-hmm. that didn't work Just, out so well for him no, no no this whole story is like callbacks to former subjects even from the very beginning C.W.'s father had been a friend of Lincoln's, so they probably knew Mary Lincoln. So that's where it started. I mean, the name dropping just started right away.
1: The very next year, the second daughter, Eleanor, came out into society and not only American society she was able to be presented to King George V and Queen Mary in Britain. Oh my gosh. You know, I <laughs> think that Marjorie always wanted Eleanor to marry a titled nobleman. She kept sitting them next to her at dinner, etc. maybe remembering those Gilded Age heiresses of her own youth who had done such a thing.
0: Right. The following year, Marjorie herself was presented to King George and Queen Mary. And she was wearing pearl-shaped diamond earrings once owned by Marie Antoinette. We had talked about this in the last episode, how the art that she's acquiring is really artifacts. And that's just another example of it as far as I'm concerned.
1: I'm still confused as to how she got presented at court, except for the fact that she has many titled lady friends. Ding, and ding ding. Unlimited money. So those are two things. Um, but anyway, you should see the portrait of her in her presentation gown. She is absolutely beautiful. Those earrings came to her via Napoleon II, via the Russian imperial family, via Cartier. You know. <laughs> and those earrings right now are in, oddly, the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. If you want to see them, what an unlikely place. And also the Blue Heart Diamond that inspired the heart of the ocean from Titanic, which she also owned, is also sitting there in the Smithsonian Natural History Museum.
0: Well, that's where they put all the rocks and stuff. And diamonds are just rocks. I think that's where the Hope Diamond was or is. That's where we used to go when I was a kid. We'd go to DC and my brother and I would race into that building just to look at the Hope Diamond for some reason. It's just our thing. As long as you didn't touch it. Isn't it cursed? Isn't that the one? I I think so. Yeah. Trust me. You couldn't get close enough to touch it. Stop touching the Hope Diamond. Mom, Dad, can we go look at the Hope Diamond? Yes. Just don't touch it. (laughs) All right. Stop playing Frisbee by the Hope Diamond.
1: (laughs) Uh, That doesn't work out. Okay. So basically Marjorie Post and family led a lifestyle of just lavishness jewels notwithstanding their life was something else they were entertaining in palm beach and that certainly made the papers but so did her generosity i just want to make sure to show you both sides of the coin for years years she had been hosting benefits for good causes in fact right when they got there to mar-a-lago she held a party for 1100 local servants That's a lot of people. She opened Mar-a-Lago to the Girl Scouts and the local children's home and had the Barnum and Bailey Circus come as the entertainers. Unbelievable. (laughs) She was known for her costume parties in which she, true to form, with her Francophile lifestyle, had costumes, elaborate costumes made for her of Marie Antoinette. She loved, loved Marie Antoinette. And just think of her having the earrings of Marie Antoinette. And isn't it, is it Taylor Swift that has the Jane Austen ring? Kelly Clarkson, Anne Hathaway, Reese Witherspoon, some some star of today bid on an artifact of that nature and won. And I'm just thinking how, wow, it would be really nice to be like, I have this great hero and now I'm going to just own a piece of this history, you know? I just
0: yeah. Cool. Oh, no, I do. And it that made me think of the difference between Marjorie and Marie Antoinette. You know, Marjorie's wealth wasn't taken from common folk, but was acquired by making products that were used by common folk. Oh, that's true. So she provided a benefit. Correct. To the common person. Correct. I'm going to say this and then you're going to make me cut it out. In addition to being a Marie Antoinette fangirl. <laughs> Oh yeah, fangirl. Mm. <laughs> no, you hate that. Oh, uh, ladies and
1: gentlemen, the word fangirl. I just don't know what to say about that.
0: <laughs> Susan likes that word though. Oh, I quite honestly, I like it most because I know that it grates on you. Oh, we've come, we've come to that portion of our relationship <laughs> where we're sitting in the back
1: seat and our mother's going to have to put tape down the middle, <laughs> starting with because you're poking me. That's right. That part of our relationship? You don't want me to punk you like this, like this, (laughs) like this? Hilarious. In addition to the acts of charity that made the papers, there were many innumerable private acts of charity to family and friends. It was one of her favorite things to give a boost to someone that had a good idea or some kind of ambition for something. You know, she's responsible for the development of macadamia nuts in Hawaii. through mm-hmm. a distant cousin of hers. And now they grow everywhere and there's major corporations.
0: That's just like how she saw this frosted food and knew that it could be a thing, even though technology wasn't there in, you know, the grocery stores and people's homes and railroad cars. The same thing was true for the macadamia nut, but she saw the potential in it. She was quite a visionary and I don't think she gets enough credit for that.
1: But even if the idea wasn't a giant moneymaker and someone just needed a little, like a hand reaching down, I often think that just that tiny infusion of cash at just the right time can make or break a person's life. And so she was micro lending before it was even certainly an app or even a a thing. And then when her daughters used to say, you know, he's just going to waste that. And she's like, la, 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 I don't have to care. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. That's right. As far as I'm concerned, he needed a little bit of money. I gave him a little bit. Finito. That's all. (laughs) I don't have to follow up. I love that. In general, the 1920s were a decade that was all about excess, not just Marjorie Post, but all over. And sure, not everyone kept Mr. Cartier in, you know, brie and champagne, but plenty did. And what's more, it seemed like things were only going to get better for the average person, too. We talked about this during our Shirley Temple episode. Things looked up. Things had been getting better. Things were only going to get better. All people saw was improvement in society. But Mm -hmm. in October of 1929, after nearly a month of increasingly alarming economic news, the stock market crashed and the After effects of this panic destabilized the world's economy for the next decade, the Great Depression had begun and Marjorie's philanthropy shifted into high gear. Now, obviously, she provided a lifeline to friends that had lost a lot of money, employees that needed her um, in ways big and small. She also funded mainstream charities, both funding and fundraising, especially for the Salvation Army. But Marjorie set up the Marjorie Post Hutton Canteen at 10th and 35th Street in New York City for women and children because Marjorie Post product of the latter Victorian age, was a horrified at women and children's just helpless state and exposure to the roughest language and, and manners. And they needed a haven. They needed to be taken care of. They needed somewhere to go. And in her canteen, which provided them meals, thousands a day, there were flowers on the table. There were tablecloths on the table. They were served by paid waiters with white aprons on. Tens of thousands of meals were served for five years at her expense. I will say her husband established a canteen for men, <laughs> kind of far away. Um, <laughs> so the men did have food too. And as a matter of fact, the realist Marjorie Post knew that if you know if men were aged or infirm, they couldn't make it all the way down to her husband's canteen. And they did serve men ultimately at that canteen too. They would all put their fingers to their two eyes and then point like, we are watching your behavior. and like right. I,
0: I love that she was not only contributing food, but the employment. I think that was what really put it over the top for me is that she was employing people. This isn't a buffet. I and mean, These are multi-course meals. She wanted it to be like families would have in their home, a dinner, a proper dinner.
1: Right, right. Yeah. She wanted to yeah. provide people with their dignity.
0: Mm-hmm. I think. And and
1: that's something that's lacking in a lot of charity. And when asked about this period later, all Marjorie said was, I like to think of how many people are healthier today because of that help when they needed it. Right. And I keep reading this and it always sounds smarmy and it could well be true, but it really does sound like, anyway, I'll just say it and you can judge. People are saying that this canteen was paid for by the money she saved by putting all her jewelry in the bank and stopping to pay her jewelry insurance. (laughs) I know. I wrote that down with a huge question mark too. I was like, eh, really? (laughs) She had enough money at all times without having to shift it from account to account in that way. Perhaps concurrently, she saved money on her insurance. But I don't think she's like, oh, now I can pay for this.
0: Right. I and mean, I think she also putting the jewels away. She knew she wasn't going to wear them until this was over. You know, the Marie Antoinette parties were going to have to be put on hold. So she doesn't need these jewels anyway. So put them right. away. Yeah. Right. She really
1: did believe, and she put her wallet where her mouth was, that <laughs> you should keep wealth moving. And she said, ideally, I should make my money work in 100 ways. And she provided homes for the elderly unemployment relief, um, hospitals and clinics. Yes, she also did charity event fundraisers. And that's what you might expect of a woman of means. But she was also willing to get right on into the trenches and see what is happening. There's a famous story of how she rallied all of these young debutantes to help her solicit donations for the Salvation Army downtown. And it started to rain and all the debutantes are like, this was a really fun outing. But no, <laughs> she's out there with her wellies and soliciting money. She's like, we're not here for a joke, ladies. We're, right. we're here to get money for the Salvation Army. And this is what ladies do. So, Right.
0: I wonder how much we didn't hear about, because I did read several times that she felt that her wealth wasn't to be flaunted and that she refused press coverage. So there's stories that we'll never know about. I firmly right. believe there's a lot of them, you know, that she helped people without wanting any coverage of it at all. I mean, some things, you know, charity teas you're going to need coverage because that's what's going to bring in the big donors that want that kind of thing. But as for herself, you know, she didn't care for it. Right. She was listed on the most charming 10 women over 30 based on just her public service. And Eleanor Roosevelt herself awarded her the cross of honor for her charity work. So Marjorie had a
1: very genuine, charitable, letting people have their dignity approach to helping the less fortunate than herself. She really believed that intervention was the key and acted upon that. Now, Mr. Marjorie had a different philosophy, sort of. His philosophy was the best way the rich can help the economy is by making lavish purchases. Now, he's not wrong Exactly. I mean, if you buy a new house to be built, you've got the carpenters making money and then they spend their money at the grocery store. And, you know, I get it. It circulates. Yeah. And profits of General Foods were up, up, up. Commodity prices, because of the depression, had reached rock bottom. And so the supplies for all their products could be snapped up at just rock bottom cost. And the public were still buying their products. Um, It was a giant treat. You know, Jell-O's price had gone down to five cents, which was just like a glorious little treat to have. That little box, that little nice thing. People really spent money on it, you know? So they were still raking the money in like Scrooge McDuck, just filing it in a vault, you know? And the Huttons took delivery of the most spectacular purchase yet.
0: Speaking of Scrooge McDuck doing the backstroke on his piles of money, the Hutton's christened a brand new 300 plus foot yacht. It had a barbershop and a movie theater, a staff of 72. And while Marjorie put a lot of thought into the naming of her homes, EF just named the boats the same thing and just tacked on a number. So this was the Hussar the Fifth. At the time of its construction, it was the largest private ship in the entire world.
1: In today's dollars, it would have cost $27.7 million to build. It has gold faucets that Marjorie said are easier to clean. (laughs) Y'all, like she knew. (laughs) And that may be true. And I may also mock them, but my friend Robin will note that we were in the Ritz in Paris and their bathrooms have faucets shaped like swans made of gold and did I take a photo yes I did (laughs) so I could also be impressed by gold faucets I'm just yeah I don't know does
0: does gold corrode no she might be right so you know with the sea air uh she might be onto something (laughs) it's not as is it a
1: selling point though
0: (laughs) well if you own Marie Antoinette's earrings yes
1: I guess yeah (laughs) Speaking of royalty, visiting royalty were just blown away. It was like a floating palace decorated to the nines in Marie Antoinette era furniture and decor. And as a student of the French Revolution, as Marjorie was, if you're going to splash out, literally splash yourself into the ocean away from witnesses. You know what I'm saying? I think that's the philosophy here.
0: As long as she was comfortable, really. You know, I cannot fault her,
1: really. Not really, really. Her money was also doing a lot of good. And also, they had pre-ordered this before the crisis. Right. It's not like they saw the breadline and went, by the way, you know what I think we need, darling?
0: (laughs) Gold faucets, shaped like a swan. Yeah. And she knew that it wasn't going to last forever, the depression, so...
1: I'm just constantly wondering about excess though, Susan. Like, when, I mean, not just Marjorie Post, but like in general, like, when is enough enough? Like, this pandemic has really made me think the best thing is like Aperol Spritzes and some really stanky blue cheese with a friend on the back porch is more valuable to me mm-hmm. than like a ring or a pair of shoes. I know, fan yourself for real I <laughs> that I
0: just said that. But like, when is enough enough? And she was raising a child in this environment. In 1932, the toddler son of Charles Lindbergh had been kidnapped from his own home in New Jersey. And this really shook Marjorie. She also had a young child, little Deanie. So what the family did was for six months out of the year, they lived aboard the Hussar 5 and traveled the world. Now that's the true luxury. I, okay, yeah. I'm down with that.
1: I've said when's enough enough, but you know what? The freedom to see the world is mm-hmm. a luxury I can get
0: behind. Yeah, and Dini had a tutor, so she kept up with her schoolwork, and she got to see the Galapagos Islands, and they, quote, adopted a tortoise. There's pictures of Marjorie and Dina on the deck with this giant tortoise. What an education she had. I'm reminded of the Romanoffs. You know how they were
1: always on their <laughs> oh, boat? Yes. Oh, yeah. Making friends of the sailors, I mean, of which there's a lot of staff on this boat. So surely we'll find a friend on this boat. Also, they just went everywhere. They went to France and all parts European. They went to Alaska. They went all over the Caribbean. Okay, listeners, long-term listeners already know this, but if you're new, Susan grew up for the a large part of her childhood on a boat that actually like traversed large sections of water. And she (laughs) should probably tell you her pirate story. (laughs)
0: <laughs> My parents were actually live aboards for their retirement, and they had a not a 300 foot yacht. <laughs> it was 60 feet. It was made in Hong Kong, and they were sailing out of Hong Kong towards the Philippines, and they saw something on the horizon, and it just kept getting closer and closer and faster and faster. And it turned out to be this speedboat that was looked kind of like a dragon. It was painted. Fortunately, my parents were traveling with other liveaboards, so it was like a group of them. Somehow they scared off these pirates, but pirates are a real thing, a really bad thing that exists today. So that must have been something that the Huttons encountered. Of course, they would have been down below because this is, you know, this is like a hotel floating. Like our boat would have been the tender that they towed behind the yacht. (laughs) Is a tender
1: like the little car you take behind the RV?
0: Yes. Yes, on smaller boats, they call them a dinghy, but on larger yachts where it's like a a really nice dinghy, they call it a tender. You know, they said about that boat that the lifeboats had
1: lifeboats.
0: That's how big they were. (laughs) I believe it. So while their life really was full of glitter, their marriage kind of was dissolving. All was not well in paradise. great if there were a pocket-sized guide that helped us all sleep or focus or act or just generally be better? There is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. That's not hyperbole talking. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditation in a very easy-to-use app, and it's one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. I have to admit, before I sit down to talk with you, I always feel a little anxious and very scatterbrained. I sit down for a three-minute guided meditation on focus before I get into my conversation closet. (laughs) But Headspace has sessions of different lengths for all kinds of things. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed or you need help falling asleep. And if you have 10 to 20 minutes, there are guided meditations for everything from coping with cravings to dealing with regret or handling sadness. You deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com/chicks That's headspace.com slash chicks for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal being offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash chicks today.
1: So here we are on the surface, gloriously happy on a yacht, as one would be. But all was not as it seemed. Often, Ned and Marjorie took separate vacations. Now, my husband and I do this, it's perfectly fine. Marjorie inherited her father's love of health spas, although I don't think they involved salt water and electricity anymore. (laughs) And the rumor mill started a whispering campaign. Her lady friends had. Things to say to her. She heard that her husband was seeing other people, shall we say, in a G rated podcast. And she came up with increasingly elaborate schemes to catch him at it. Machinery, talcum powder sprinkled around the bed, cleverly placed silken threads is what I don't know what a silken thread is, just thread. Yeah, and he was caught (laughs) red-handed with a quote, siren, which I cannot hear that word without thinking about George Clooney in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? His brother says, them sirens done loved him up and turned him into a horny toad. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what happened to E.F. Hutton. Wow. I know. Ned's siren landed him in divorce court after turning him into a horny tip. Mm. (laughs) So that is the public reason for their impending separation.
0: And the next level behind that was he thought she spent too much. She thought he gambled too much. And politically, they were on opposite ends of the spectrum. She really supported FDR's New Deal. She thought that was the best way to rebuild the country. EF said that Roosevelt was a socialist, that that is not going to help rebuild the country. What's going to rebuild the country is big business. That was the next level political differences.
1: Also, he spoke out against Roosevelt and the New Deal, particularly the regulation of the stock market and banking, but also the Federal Emergency Relief Act, which created some new uh, federal jobs. He was infuriated by what he saw as a tax burden on people like him. Now, Marjorie, characteristically, as we know by now, regarded this latter scenario where the federal government, to give people their dignity, provided them with jobs so they could provide for their families. She thought that was perfect. Also, She's super embarrassed that he was so outspoken because she'd been developing a friendship with the Roosevelts, a personal friendship. And also, how dare he speak out with these views as the CEO of her company? Like, not cool. Do not drag Jello into this, you know? Like, <laughs> He got to the point where he had to retract his statements to the press. And, you know, oh, that was me as a person. I do not represent the views of the corporation or the board thereof and blah, blah, blah. And then ultimately, he was made to resign as chairman, replaced at last by Marjorie's sleeper agent. We remember him. You know, her long game has (laughs) come to fruition because he had to blow his stack in the public forum. So, I mean, I can see why that would make her so mad. Like in today's views, you would almost say he like invited the company to be canceled, kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. because the middle class people that bought their products pretty much overwhelmingly supported the New Deal, as you will see in a minute when I tell you by what margin Roosevelt got reelected. So um, (laughs) she's a little bit, um, well, a lot angry at him. For bringing that danger upon her company, but okay, so you know, there's the behind-the-scenes reason why they might be getting divorced. But there was a um, deleted scenes level, <laughs> like uh, you had to buy the DVD to get this level reason. For years, i.e., the whole time, Marjorie was carrying a torch and having a very intense friendship with a DC lawyer. And, you know, they appeared at the same dinners. Everyone noticed their magnetismo. Joseph E. Davies, his name was, call me Joe, so we'll call him Joe, (laughs) was in with senators and congressmen, and he was a close personal friend of FDR. He was very intriguing. This was a new circle to run in. A man who was going places, you know, a self-made and driven man who was also personable and shared Marjorie's views on
0: the world and, you know, politics. And like Marjorie, Joe Davies was married and had a child. So that's a little sticky. And
1: they wrote love letters, love letters full of emotion and respect. And she had to say, you have to stop writing. You have to stop writing. We have to cut this off. I'm divorcing my husband for adultery. How would this look if it came out? And it wasn't physical infidelity, but it was certainly emotional infidelity, I think. Um, They went on an ocean liner trip, each with their own families and quote, accidentally met on board. When they landed in England, this man told his wife of 33 years, adios. And it was kind of out of the blue. Like she didn't know that was coming. Shocked her. So upset. And the daughter who had been with him on the boat said to Marjorie, I'm going to try to break you up. I won't have this. My mother cannot be treated this way. And Marjorie said to her, I wouldn't have it any other way. I respect you more for defending your mother. I'm like, what are you <laughs> What are you going to say
0: to that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Coincidentally, that daughter also was headed towards divorce. So Joe's wife and the daughter went to Reno to get a Reno-Quickie divorce together, like a mother-daughter outing. Mm. I know. Marjorie's divorce was a little more complicated because they had so many properties and money wrapped up together. So it took a little bit longer. But in the end, Marjorie got full custody of Dina EF got to see her every other Christmas and spring break and one month every summer. I think that's kind of shameful. Dina was very close to her father in her childhood, and they traveled
1: everywhere together and got so close on the boat, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Later in her life, Dina said, divorce was a low point in my life. In fact, I think it was one of the worst experiences I had. Mm. I know. As for that property, Marjorie maintained full ownership of Mar-a-Lago. She got Hillwood Estate in Long Island. She got their mansion in the sky in New York, Camp Huttridge, and she got the latest version of the Hussar, the Hussar 5, which she immediately renamed Sea Cloud. Just after her divorce,
1: Marjorie took a radical step. She asked Mr. Crane, who was now the CEO of General Foods, we know him, as Marjorie's sleeper agent, so far we've never told you his name, um, to put her on the board of directors herself, her own body, not a proxy, Marjorie Merriweather, post Hutton.
0: Love. (laughs) So this is a huge deal. As a matter of fact, she even said, again, back in my daddy's business, she wrote that in one of her many, many scrapbooks. Mr.
1: Crane wrote her back, All the directors have been sounded out. I am expressing the unanimous opinion in writing you that anytime you wish, we will be delighted to elect you a member of the board of directors. Any information about the company, which you may want, is available to you at any time. I mean, there was no drama. Everyone's like,
0: fair enough. Sounds good. Society had gotten to the point where a woman could sit on a board like that. and She knew she could do it.
1: Well, also, her reputation preceded her. She's generally well thought of. Uh, Her business acumen is well known. It's also Mm -hmm. well known that she'd been in training for this since the age of nine and- her input of decades had been valuable to them in business. I will say that Ned was still on the board for another year and a half, two years. They tried not to be in the same place at the same time, but eventually he pieced out. So that was good, but it was a little awkward for a while. Unfortunately, um, although the board thought she was fabulous, Marjorie was not as well thought of out in the open air, Washington, D.C., in particular, by the end of this year, 1935. Marjorie and Joe were married, she in pink velvet, which sounds delightful. After a honeymoon aboard the Sea Cloud, they set up a house in D.C., where many people took the side of Joe Davies' poor wife, some of the more loyal among them. Never spoke to Joe Davies again, ever, which I think is admirable for friends of decades, you mm-hmm. know, long, but it yeah, made well, it very difficult for both of them. Yeah. So Joe Davies still had political ambitions. He had once tried and failed to be elected to the Senate. He had, you know, in the back of his mind, one day I'd like to be president. Maybe that time had passed. One path, however, to a political cachet could Arguably be bought with cold hard cash. And the word is, even now, that perhaps, perhaps a significant contribution to FDR's 1936 presidential campaign may have led, this is all I'm saying, may have led, (laughs) is is said to perhaps have been, I don't know what verb case that is, um, (laughs) a possible reason that FDR offered him an ambassadorship.
0: Yeah, they were pretty confident that he was going to be offered an ambassadorship. Marjorie and Joe were talking and they thought maybe France or Germany, maybe the UK. But when FDR did call to offer the ambassadorship, it was for Russia.
1: Soviet Russia, the USSR, run by one Joseph Stalin. One book I read said that they were so sure they were going to be assigned to France, the plum posting, Mm -hmm. hooray, you know, France's, Marjorie's spiritual home, or Berlin, equally fabulous, that it might have been a mistake to gloat slash speculate about that, because perhaps FDR gave them the punishment posting, Mm -hmm. i.e. Russia. (sighs) Enemies of Mr. Davis in DC were tickled by this. Like, haha, so much for your vision of yourselves drinking champagne at Versailles, enjoy the snow, enjoy the lack of awesomeness via con Diablo. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but Marjorie was very wary at first. Yes, it's weird and daunting there. She wasn't ready for that to be the posting, but she would be the very first ambassadress that they had ever had. The USSR had only developed diplomatic ties with the United States about three years ago, and the first guy was a bachelor, so she would be the first woman in residence. FDR asked them to, quote, befriend the Soviets. Europe was rumbling with discontent. Whose side would Russia and its army be on if things went down over there? You know, that was one thing Mm -hmm. he was supposed to do. The next thing, which was actually kind of more in his wheelhouse... Joe had decades of experience in business dealings with foreign governments. So this wasn't 100% like just, hey, let's throw you wherever. There was a $40 million agreement kind of floating around that the USSR would buy United States products. And, you know, America needed investment like that and would really like that money flowing into the economy. So he was also in charge
0: of undertaking that contract. So I think she really got her mind turned around and was all in on this project once she accepted that that's where they were going. I think that was kind of in her personality. Like, this is going to happen. Let's make the most of it. Hey, my job is to throw parties and represent the United States. She can do that. Forget Marie Antoinette. How about emulating Catherine the Great? (laughs) I do have to say in a small way, though, she
1: was still. Still Marie antoinette it up, and you know I like M.A., but M.P. <laughs> sent ahead of time a decorator or two, some cooks, set up a whole bunch of freezers and frozen foods. Frozen foods. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Birdseye. 2,000 pints of frozen cream became like a nationwide laughingstock.
0: Um, but I have to say, she had a really good valid reason for this. 2000 pints of cream. Well, first off, her job is to entertain, right? So that cream can be mixed with water and it becomes milk for cooking, or it can be used as cream. And a famine in Russia had decimated the cow situation. So there was no cream in the country. So she was actually stocking for parties and for living. I think that was a valid purchase. Of course, nobody else thought that Someone cornered her at a party and said, are you really going to take 2,000 jars of cold cream to Russia? And Marjorie knew the woman meant the cream, the food cream, but she whispered back to her, does my face look like I need 2,000 jars of cold cream? It's like, she's not going to take it. So Marjorie's table was a
1: triumph based on her preparation and her forethought. Her appearance was astonishing, astonishing. And, you know, we talked about during the Romanov episode how Russian women of the imperial court routinely appeared with jewels as big as robin's eggs and no one blinked an eye, you know but Marjorie was advised to tone things down in Russia. All those jewels really did harken back to the imperial past and they weren't going to play well. One of her daughters said the simplicity really suited her and she never looked better than when she was in Russia. I thought that was great, but she was a triumph. Soviet Russia, well, let's just say, was not known for its beauty, I guess. Um <laughs> practicality was the key. They'd been mm-hmm. through some tough times. You know, Susan mentioned the famine. And and so Marjorie's sophisticated appearance really blew people's minds in a way that I, I'm not entirely sure she anticipated. So these two countries, the U.S. and the USSR, had a troubled relationship. You know, it was based on a lot of mistrust. The Russians owed us lots of money Philosophically and politically, the countries were at opposite ends of the spectrum. So when the Davies occupied the ambassador's residence, Spazzo House, they were not surprised exactly, but they were irritated to realize that the entire place was bugged within an inch of its life um, electronically. They might have the bugs removed, but sure enough, they'd be back the next day. Servants had trained as spies, it was discovered. They would hear the sirens of the secret police and the screams of the people that were being taken. There were sudden disappearances of high-ranking officials that they had just had to dinner that you were not supposed to remark upon or even notice. But how can you not notice? But you're not supposed to say anything. People were encouraged in this society to inform upon each other Russia was the best country on earth, they said, and anyone who didn't think so was a traitor, uh, was a problem, and was liquidated or sent to Siberia. Oh, my gosh. Even when I was growing up, I legitimately remember Mikhail Barishnikov as a character, not you know, playing himself. He was a character in a movie being sent to Siberia. Do you remember this movie? It had Gregory Hines in it, and it was about a dancer.
0: Oh, what was that? Shoot.
1: But anyway, so that that was like a trope. If you displease the authorities, they'll send you to Siberia. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like dismissing the fact that it was real, but I'm just saying that was like a a popular understanding of Soviet Russia when I was growing up, is that Mm -hmm. what happened. It was a tough start. Let's not put too fine a point on that. But over time, they charmed both the Russians and their fellow diplomats. Honors and contracts and respect came their way. Joe was invited to tour factories and dams and um, other marvels of engineering bridges. Marjorie was taken to schools and daycares and hospitals. They had what was considered to be unprecedented access to this really secretive country. I'm 100% sure it was engineered so he'd see the best of whatever it was. And whatever they didn't want him to see was carefully hidden behind a curtain or whatever. But the diplomats at home sort of grumbled because in addition to touring around the country at the behest of the Russians, they were also cruising around on the sea cloud. Now, how did that look? Were they even serious? (laughs) This is not the way it's done. But, you know, they were working on their own scenario there. Sometimes it helps not to know how it's done and make
0: your own way. Correct. Another thing that they were doing, which wasn't exactly typical of diplomats, is they were starting to collect Russian art. One of the advantages they had is that art from Imperial Russia was no longer in vogue. So it was going for bargain basement prices. Marjorie tells stories about looking for things in warehouses, like on her hands and knees and finding these priceless items and getting them for very little money. So they began to collect Russian art and jewelry and whatever they can get their hands on. They were just fascinated by it. And while they were in Russia, this collection was growing rapidly.
1: So it wasn't just that it was not in vogue. It was actually considered extraordinarily inappropriate and Mm -hmm. was seized property. Uh, warehoused to keep it out of the public eye. And now to fund the new Soviet state, they had begun to liquidate this, but it was not done, that's capital N-D, to value it as art itself. So the jewelry was sold by the weight of the commodity gold in it. And so what ultimately ended up happening for one example is that Marjorie and Joe collected, say, Fabergé materials the way you and I might gather Funko
0: Pops of the cast of The <laughs> Office. It's <laughs> oh, <that's> funny. <laughs> I have the women collection of Funko Pops. What? Which ones? Um, let's say I have Alice in Wonderland, which actually I bought to give to you, and I kept. And. <laughs> <laughs> I have Wonder Woman. I have Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think you have Queen Elizabeth because I have the same one with her corgi. And I have uh, Jackie. Jackie Kennedy. I have them all over my bookshelf that I have all my women's history books in. I thought they fit there. Joe Davies' admiration for Russia
1: was seen as naive and embarrassing. They called him a freshman ambassador, which in fact he was Like, no one had the rosy view of Russia's motivations like Joe Davies did. You know, like, he would swallow any dang thing they told him was the complaint. Even trials for treason involving dudes who had been at their dinner parties, had eaten at their table, and had conversations. He would say things like, there must have really been some kind of tremendous plot that the government found out. Like, did he really think that? or was he instructed to say things like that to keep the peace i just don't know yeah I- um but things like that really seemed a little bit i don't know what the word is disingenuous to the to the rest of the diplomatic corps like they kind of couldn't believe that was coming out of his face
0: <laughs> yeah
1: but he did have a point underlying all of that He and I want to quote him here from the viewpoint of the struggle for the survival of democracy and in view of the fact that England and France are being imminently threatened by the domination of fascism in Europe. It's difficult to understand why the strength that is here available in Russia should not be fostered and used. So he's saying, look, you if you don't make a friend of Russia, the Nazis will and you don't want that smoke.
0: no. His
1: whole point is Russia's strong and powerful and really key to holding peace in Europe. Act now or you're not going to be able to act later. And sure enough, right as they were leaving for a new assignment that we'll tell you about in a moment, he met with Stalin, who basically said, all right, uh, we'll pay that old debt. Yeah, we'll pay the old debt. We'll join up with the U.S., Uh, against the Nazis. Also, uh, can you ask your boy FDR, can I please have that battleship you guys built and is just sitting there? Because that would be really um, cool. And it was was seen as a giant triumph. This man came to him and said all these things. very surprising on the way out. Man, was that a long game of loyalty and a blind eye? I guess that had paid off. It seems dirty to me, the whole thing. But I think that's the way the cookie crumbles in diplomacy, actually. Yeah. Some of those agreements would fall apart later for assorted reasons. Also dirty. We won't get into that. But for now, Joe was a big hero.
0: So as a reward, Joe was given his next appointment, this time as ambassador to Belgium. So we are back on Marjorie's old stomping grounds of Europe in 1938. So that's not the best time to be there.
1: Although Marjorie's first response was, thank God they have a king. (laughs) 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 she wanted the glorious lifestyle. She wanted the pomp and circumstance that Russia had lacked. So that was awesome. He was also a representative of the United States to a much smaller nearby country of Luxembourg. Joe became golfing buddies with the King of Belgium. Yes. And Marjorie became very close with the ruler of Luxembourg, Grand Duchess Charlotte of Nassau. But you could see Nazi troop exercises from the countryside of Luxembourg. You could hear Herr Hitler on the radio, y'all. And in March of 1939, Hitler invaded and took Czechoslovakia and the Soviets began making deals with Germany, both financial and military, to which Joe Davies said, I told you so. Although he put it more diplomatically,
0: <laughs> as he was a diplomat,
1: the next thing the Nazis did was invade Poland, and I don't know how to say this, but they—they they were not—they um, ravaged Poland. It was so violent, so violent, and the Allies, Britain and France. Coming to the aid of Poland as they promised they would, declared war on Nazi Germany. The families of every ambassador were recalled and ordered to come home or stay home if that's where they were. Marjorie, who was out of the country at the time, was like, oh no, all my things are there, all my artifacts that I have so carefully collected. And she engineered some remote packing services and people sent her artifacts back on multiple ships in case there were submarines, that only some of them would be lost. One of her assistants watched in absolute horror as two torpedoes almost hit the boat he was on. I mean, it was... Not a time to be just frivolously wandering about the ocean. Joe wrote that anyone who could afford it was fleeing Belgium. And he volunteered to resign as ambassador and go home and be a specialist, I guess, on Russia.
0: Upon returning to the United States, Joe accepted a position in Washington as assistant to the Secretary of State, where he was able to use all that Russian intelligence that he had gained during his time there. Get
1: this. Marjorie helped the Grand Duchess smuggle her six kids out of Luxembourg. Yes, she did. And she hosted them at her house on Long Island for months. The royal family of a whole country lived in Marjorie's house. It is a very valuable service because the younger sister of Duchess Charlotte got sent to Dachau concentration camp and barely survived. So her children were in grave danger and Marjorie provided them with um, a safe haven They later, um, I think, moved to Montreal, but um, hers was the first outpost that they landed. So that was great. And for that effort, she received the Order of Merit of the House of Savoy of the Royal Duchy of Luxembourg. Marjorie was NDC, cultivating society, yes, and the doubters, yes, (laughs) of which there were many, but also, this is a novelty, female journalists. She had never before really allowed journalists to cross her path. So this was very new. Slowly but surely, she is becoming the person to know in D.C. Meanwhile, she is a patron of the American Red Cross and also participates in significant amounts of fundraising for it and is becoming increasingly close to Eleanor Roosevelt. In fact, so close that Marjorie became one of the key inaugural hostesses. Politically, the United States, as a collective, wanted to stay out of World War II. There was a giant isolationist sentiment in this country. Marjorie, having seen both the Russians and the Nazis up close, traveled around giving speeches to audiences of women. And I quote, To none in this world is the outcome of this war more vital than to women. If the Nazi totalitarian system should dominate our world, the status of women would be horrible to contemplate. It would be reduced to that of the breeder and housefrau for an ordained supermale in a world dominated by a Nordic master race.
0: Whoa, I mean, Handmaid's Tale's coming is what she's saying. Well, and given some things I've seen
1: about the Nazi regime, I'm not sure that's entirely wrong. I don't know. think that the place of women as, you know, voters and career women would have been advanced in any way. So she was really at it. Like, look, we all have to counter this threat. Right. So the thing that changed America's mind was something that happened in December of 1941. The country of Japan, in a surprise shock attack, bombed Pearl Harbor. And now America was in the war.
0: Marjorie, for her part, she upped what she had been doing. She was continuing to do more fundraising for the Red Cross. She also leased the sea cloud to the Navy for a dollar a year. She said, quote, because I didn't have a son to give to the war. So she gave her boat. They stripped it bare and put artillery on it and got it ready as kind of a very small warship. I mean, it's a big boat, but as warships go, it's on the smaller end. Marjorie may not have had a son to give to the war, but she did have a daughter who could help out. Dina, at this point, she's 22, stunningly gorgeous. She's interested in acting. So she volunteered to join the USO and was sent to the South Pacific. In a very classic mom move, Marjorie sent her a care package that consisted of two rolls of toilet paper, a box of Kleenex, and a girdle with instructions... Quote, do tell those fool Jeep drivers not to drive too fast and wear this because it will bounce your insides out if you don't. (laughs) No, I will tell you, Jeep suspensions are not what they could be.
1: I once traveled all the way down to Cape Cod for a work trip with a friend driving a Jeep. And by the time we got there, the back of my head right where it joins with my neck, like to have (laughs) ached. I just don't even know. So if there had only been a neck brace I could wear, I get it.
0: A girdle Uh, for your neck.
1: (laughs) Yeah, a girdle for my neck. (laughs) In addition to giving her famous ship, she also started a famous military canteen for off-duty army and navy gentlemen and ladies. She started the Army-Navy Relief Fund She also participated in a Russian war relief, uh, in particular the Red Crescent Society, gave radio addresses to rally Americans, and exhibited her own Russian treasures in an exhibition to raise money for the Red Cross. Post-war, relations with Russia fell apart. Pro-Russian sentiment was traitorous. You know, uh, poor old Joe found himself on the outs with the president, the diplomatic corps and the American public. His input was no longer wanted, but Marjorie herself was in the ascendancy. She hosted nobles like the Duke of Windsor and our old friend and subject, Wallace Simpson, aboard a refurbished sea cloud on a trip to Cuba. Fabulous. (laughs)
0: When the Navy gave the sea cloud back and decommissioned it, they had taken some of their war toys off of it. But Marjorie spent another three million dollars redecorating and restoring the sea cloud to its new glory. I guess it's probably even exceeded its former glory. An invitation to Marjorie's garden party meant you
1: yourself had arrived in Washington. Being on that list meant you were a thing. Another one of our former subjects, Lady Bird Johnson, as a young congressional wife, was absolutely, and I quote, thrilled the day they got invited to a garden party. She felt like, they like me.
0: They really like me. She said of Marjorie, she was sort of a duchess. She always looked like she was ready to have her portrait painted. In fairness, there are a lot of portraits of Marjorie's <laughs> house. <host. laughs> when Lady Bird and Lyndon first walked in to Marjorie and Joe's house and looked at the dining room, the table was set for a hundred with gold cutlery. And Lady Bird thought that just getting invited to these parties was an excuse to buy a new hat, a fancy hat. (laughs) Well, it was.
1: Um, I think it is so funny. We have reached, I don't know about peak eccentricity, but these garden parties, the like it invitation of the social season were randomly scheduled Brace yourselves for this. Exactly 30 days after this one yellow dogwood bloomed in the garden whenever that was. (laughs) So they were on random dates every year, but like that's what we chose.
0: And even if it was raining on the day of the party, Marjorie had thought of everything and she had a plan B in case they had to be inside and had flowers ordered so the place was still feeling kind of like a garden party. So Marjorie's parties
1: included this tradition. (laughs) It was called a round and square dance. So it's like ballroom versus square dancing. (laughs) (laughs) She loved her some square dancing And I don't know how many of you guys are old enough But we used to learn square dancing in PE I am new slash old enough That it was actually no longer square dancing I learned the hustle and Uh -uh. Yes, I did Yes, I did So when the electric slide came around I was like, ladies and gentlemen (laughs) In the 70s, we called this the hustle So you would have been okay I would have been like, wait
0: I don't know how to do this. I wouldn't have been okay, but Marjorie thought of everything and she hired professional dance instructors to mingle around as guests, kind of like that scene in Dirty Dancing when the dance instructors are teaching the guests how to do the dances while the dance is going on. If you didn't know how to dance, that was fine because someone's going to be able to teach you. She thought of everything. She had a macaroon drop that she tested the macaroons that came out of the kitchen before they were served. And if she dropped them from a certain height and they didn't make the right sound, she sent them back to the kitchen.
1: I am reminded of our Gilded Age Servants podcast. There were a whole bunch of the nobility who had had nothing but their whims catered to for their entire lives who used to demand that a hard-boiled egg's yolk be exactly in the center Mm -hmm. of the hard-boiled egg or else it was unacceptable. So these poor fools in the kitchen had to stir, like stir, 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 stir at a constant speed to make sure the centrifugal force kept the yolk right in the middle. And I'm just like, there is a level... There's a level at which it becomes, it transcends and becomes irritating. So mm-hmm. we're constantly writing that line, I think, with Marjorie Post. But the thing is, the people that worked for her always had great things to say about her. Yes, she was exacting, but you knew ahead of time what the rules were. Right. There was no surprise if you performed your task this way. I mean, she had professional cooks. Providing for her staff. She had nice places for them to sit and to have their off time. She provided them very nice bedrooms with their own bathrooms. I mean, she treated them well, expected a certain thing. Everyone lived happily ever after. So she was very well thought of by the people that worked for her. So I think that's actually more important than being thought well of by your guests, you know? Mm-hmm who might have ulterior motives to, quote, like you, you know.
0: Right, right. And I think her personality also contributed to that. So, yes, she's, you know, inspecting every single strawberry, but she was so warm and so down to earth. She never lost her Midwestern accent. She used phrases like, gosh, golly, not ironically and not with airs or anything, So she was just so sincere and down to earth that I think she could get away with this kind of thing where a lot of hostesses would be like, nah, don't think so.
1: Also her distaste for alcohol. I mean, like cocktail hour was like 20 minutes and it was like, please just have this if you have to. But, you know, the party began at seven. There was a buffet at 10. Out came late night food, which is actually a wedding trend that is happening now where like for jokes and giggles, you might have 500 cheeseburgers or pizza or a nacho cheese fountain come out of the kitchen. Yeah. What? It whoa, whoa, whoa.
0: Back it up. Oh, nacho cheese fountain? <laughs> Goodbye, chocolate fountain. Now there's something oh. meteor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no kidding. I know I'm not a big chocolate fan. That never really got me excited. It just looked like something that was super messy.
1: I think you could just run it through the same thing. The nacho cheese fountain, though, um, you have to get at it right when you put it out. Like You got about an hour and 15 minutes before okay. the cheese starts to be shall we say fragrant <laughs> <laughs> okay. but that's okay. not what happened at Marjorie's party no nacho cheese fountains um the late night food was usually cookies and cider some coffee and then bye bye by 11 p.m. like you don't have to go home but you can't stay here the lights were going out everyone was moving toward the exit <laughs> it was early enough especially for washington dc That if you and your party wanted to go out for drinks, you had plenty of time to pull that off, you know, but you're not drinking here. And everyone was sort of afraid to express any doubt or mock this in any way, because otherwise maybe their name would be crossed off the list. You know, the White House only had a 50% acceptance on their invitation list. Marjorie Post had like a hundred plus people crossing their fingers and sitting at home hoping for one. Like, so 110% admittance, you know, to her party. So it was a big, big, giant deal. And it was a great place to network too, you know? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just a social thing. It was just important to be included in the movers and the shakers in this way.
0: Speaking of not including, Joe wasn't actually a huge fan of these things. He didn't dance. He absolutely refused to dance. So there he is kind of crossing his arms in the corner if he was there at all. So that's just another step down in his descendancy. Is that how it's worded? Yeah, he became the opposite of
1: Marjorie's open, friendly style. Her philosophy is, yes, of course, the rich, but also the interesting low. You know, she was very Mm -hmm. unpretentious. She just, (laughs) I thought maybe she was unpretentious just to thwart other people's pretension. (laughs) But Joe was all like, I need everyone to give me respect. And and he started to become like super jealous. Mm -hmm. Like he once had an overnight fight with Marjorie because the Kaiser had shaken her hand.
0: Okay. I'm just going to say I'm not standing up for him. I think his behavior at this time is getting out of control. But if you think back to the way their relationship began, I, I can see why he has grounds to wonder if she's doing the same thing to him that she was doing to Ned Hutton with him.
1: But you know what, though? You did know
0: that program going in. And it's the Kaiser I I know. I know. But it wasn't just. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Like I said, I'm not really defending him. I think he was just starting to really lose grasp of what was going on around him. But
1: well, and I don't know also, but Marjorie became sort of jumpy around him and really dreaded when he would come home. So that's a red flag. Like when I hear Chris Graham's key in the door, I'm excited. And I run downstairs and, you know, to see him like I'm some kind of cat or dog. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I'm excited that he's coming home, you know, and but she was the opposite, like upstairs, like, oh, no, you know, and that's not good. Unfortunately, he was diagnosed with cancer and that maybe made her out of sympathy stay a lot longer than she might have otherwise out of sympathy for his condition and um, giving him the benefit of the doubt, I think. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they did break up.
0: Just like in her divorce from E.F. Hutton, things were a little tangled financially with their assets. And it took them quite some time to detangle everything. And they were doing it secretly. Like they weren't telling anybody that they were getting divorced until it was actually official. I don't know how you do that. Well, here's something,
1: speaking of tangled, that was a little... When they had moved to Washington, D.C., they put the D.C. house in Joe Davies' name because of male pride, I think, when they were first married. Fair enough. When you're in love, it doesn't matter. So when the divorce finally came, he demanded that it was his house. I mean, his name was on the thing. Oh, man. And she was so angry about having been forced to cede that house to him that she had the entirety of the garden removed overnight. Because those, in fact, were hers then. Uh, Yeah. She bought a new estate and renamed it Hillwood since the first Hillwood was in the process of being sold. And she was all done with men. As far as she was concerned, wah, forget all of this taking on of names. We're going to reclaim the OG Marjorie Post and from now would be known, as she hadn't been since the year she was 18, as Marjorie Merriweather Post. To which Alice Roosevelt Longworth, daughter of the indomitable Teddy Roosevelt, looked at her and said, what took you so long? (laughs) (laughs) I love her. Alice is the very origin of if you can't say anything nice, then here comes it by me. Yeah, that Alice. (sighs) So Marjorie began her latest house project, The New Hillwood, which would stand as her legacy. And no expense was spared at all. I mean, we thought no expense was spared before, like at Mar-a-Lago and everywhere. But people compared it to the palaces of Europe, um, the House of Kings, you know, that kind of thing. Well, she is the Duchess of D.C. So. <laughs> That's is true. She kind of royalty. <laughs> I think it is so funny, though, that when she was rehabbing it, there's this window she looked out and the Washington Monument was a, just a little bit off center when she looked out the window. And it really troubled her to the point where she had someone pretty much redesign that whole side of the house to properly center the Washington Monument <laughs> in the window. And people said might have been cheaper just to move the Washington Monument, actually.
0: <laughs> Okay, um, so I absolutely that- love that. You and I have been to D.C. together and you saw me when I saw the Washington Monument every single time. I was like, all oh, giddy. So I could see Marjorie doing that. I would probably have tried it if I had the money. You know, what? she did like cost saving measures in this rehab. She had saved some windows from the New York mansion that she had had and sold years ago. And she'd saved the windows. So she had them put into this house. And she bought like glassware for decoration from Woolworths and she wasn't afraid to admit it. If somebody complimented her on it, she'd say just as if she had bought it, you know, from the Queen of England herself. Oh, I got that from Woolworths.
1: (laughs) That is a very Midwestern thing. My husband and I joke about this all the time when somebody goes, I love your shirt. The next thing you say is, oh, thanks. Got it at a thrift store or, um, (laughs) oh, this car's awesome. Thanks. I got it at a significant discount. That is so Midwestern. (laughs) I just say where I got it. I don't know why.
0: I guess I'm not Midwestern enough.
1: Oh, it is so funny. So when I read that she had said, oh, thanks, Woolworths, I just am cracking up. Now, I will <laughs> tell you that she probably didn't go in the store and buy them. Her niece, Barbara Hutton, was literally the Woolworths heiress. So there's like a certain <laughs> level by which you just order it from Woolworths and it arrives at your door. So <laughs> oh, I don't think she's so five funny. and diamond it is what I'm saying. No.
0: <laughs> in addition to rehabbing this entire home, she also put a lot of time, energy, and money into the gardens, and that's plural. She had several outside of this home, and every single garden had its own theme. She even had a pet cemetery garden where she had weeping dogwoods planted. That's the level of detail. <laughs> that's, that's the level of detail this woman is doing. You know what? It just kind of strikes me odd that she would borrow a name for her house from one that she had before. Like she'd been coming up with these clever names and she had even renamed their Adirondacks camp from Hutt Ridge to Top Ridge. So why is she naming this Hillwood? Couldn't she come up with something a little more clever? I don't know. Maybe she's putting all her energy into her gardens.
1: I think Hillwood was an emotionally um, important name. Like I can imagine if I moved to another house, calling also it the House of Wood, if in fact it fits the criteria. I think maybe some of those other things had associations with husbandly failures. You right. know, the Hassar Five immediately became the Sea Cloud, etc. You know, it's like gonna wash that man right out of my hair and real estate. Like, <laughs> but Hillwood had the connotation of being where her heart had been. Right. Okay. And so this new one was, okay, I'm going to transplant my heart to this place. And so I'm going to give it the same name.
0: Okay. I accept that. And it was very similar in that there's lots of woods around it. So I could, I can see that. All right. I'll buy that. I have to tell you though, after years of thought, I finally came up with a name for my house. Mm. Drift Rose Cottage. (laughs) I have like so many drift roses in the front of my house. And my house looks like a cottage, kind of. Becca's making me an apron, embroidering it on. I designed a logo on Canva and everything. (laughs) And then I'm going to be like, how's life at the DRC? Speaking of Marjorie's gardens, a few years after she began renovating Hillwood, her friends came up with this idea. It was to commemorate her 70th birthday, and they all conspired with the landscape architect that Marjorie had hired to create what they are calling a friendship walk. And the remarkable thing isn't that 55 individuals and 58 couples chose sculptures and shrubbery and for this walk, this path, but they did it in secret. For a woman who's got her finger on everything in this home, they were able to pull this off and surprise her on her birthday to tell her about this garden that they've created.
1: She loved it. She was so touched. At the center was a marble stone that had a quote from the last Tsarina of Russia, Tsarina Alexandra. We talked about her during the Romanov podcast. And the quote was this, friendship outstays the hurrying flight of years and abides through laughter and tears.
0: That's lovely. That's how well thought of she was by the people in her circle. That tells me everything I need to know that they would do this for her. You know, if people get to a certain level of age or economics that you can't really give them things anymore. You should be giving them experiences. But they were able to do both here. Right, right.
1: And she loved showing visitors that garden. It, it really touched her, really, really touched her. I mean, it was 181 of her friends all got in on the secret in an era before social media. So everyone had to be analog, you know, <laughs> like
0: right, putting right. all
1: this together. Um, it was great. It was great. Well, Marjorie threw herself into one of her other great loves in addition to architecture and garden design, and that is Philanthropy. She started heavily patronizing the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, D.C. And in addition to supporting their assorted seasons, in fact, lengthening the season they were able to perform with her patronage, she started a program called Music for Young People, in which approximately half a million young people every year got exposed to a symphony concert. I think We all experienced the remnants of that going to symphony concerts in elementary and middle school. I, myself, as the child of symphony musicians, have (laughs) been to more symphony concerts than any of y'all put together. I'm just (laughs) (laughs) so the field trip to see my parents playing again in the symphony was not as unprecedented as for some people. This might be the only exposure they ever had to classical music. And that was great. She thought it was very important. In addition, she gave scholarships to talented young people who otherwise would not have been able to attend the likes of Juilliard
0: to become symphony musicians and she's extending this you know beyond her i don't know what we call it her route you know palm beach adirondacks washington this is nationwide there was groups of high school students already going to washington so she added this onto their experiences when they came into the city to show mm-hmm. off her city and get them more involved in the arts Back in the Wayback Machine, um, the original
1: Hillwood, she had offered to sell it to Long Island University um, for a pretty rock bottom price, but the neighbors (laughs) were not super excited about what they saw as the riffraff, i.e. the students who would be coming to this school. And there was a multi-year legal battle about whether or not she was going to be allowed to sell it to them. And ultimately, she was able to sell it. And it is now CW Post College. That was another example of philanthropy because she did sell that property to them for a very inexpensive price and, in fact, you know, provided them with legal support for four years. So there's that.
0: She was able to build 400-acre Boy Scout camps in Texas and in New York State. And provided them with a new headquarters
1: and a significant amount of cash. And she didn't forget the
0: women either. She supported her alma mater, Mount Vernon Seminary, as well as post-college. At Mount Vernon, she built a building named after her father, Post Hall, and she was named a sorority mother who entertained her girls in Washington, D.C. every single year. She invited them on an outing with her. (laughs) She would donate $50,000 to $100,000 a year in additional donations to both of those institutions. So she's not forgetting anybody.
1: The recipients of her generosity showered her with honors and awards. In fact, she got the Legion of Honor from France at last for her World War I hospital. She was so proud of the Legion of Honor. And it was kind of heavy. And she didn't like to pin it on her clothes because it would pull. But she had small representations of this made, small light ones made, that she would wear on her outfits for quite a long time. One of the people who had participated in her friendship walk project was a handsome fella who'd been one of her favorite escorts about town, a man named Herbert May, who ran in the same circles as Marjorie and also had her open, friendly spirit. He was a wealthy widower he um, was on a lot of corporate boards. He was the vice president of a major corporation. She loved to patronize the symphony. He was a fan of patronizing the opera. He had business smarts plus social graces, and people loved him. And no one was that surprised when their engagement was announced. Unfortunately, it was the same day that husband number three, Joe Davies, died. That's un. Forge timing. Couldn't be foreseen, but did engender a little bit of side eye.
0: After they got married, she told her granddaughter the next day that she felt like she was, quote, walking through fluffy pink clouds. She's 71 years old and she's walking through fluffy pink clouds in love. This guy is good looking. He is charismatic. You know, he was an excellent arm candy, I'm going to say, which is really bad, but... I think it fits. (laughs) One of the things that Herb did for Marjorie, she hated flying. She was taking trains on that circuit of homes that she did every single year. So he arranged for her to fly on a private jet on a perfectly calm day. And she was hesitant, but she trusted him. And as soon as they got up in the air, she sitting there and she said, I want one. and He said, oh, honey, no, this plane costs several million dollars. I just want you to experience flying and realize there's nothing to be scared of. And she looked at him and she said, Herb, I didn't ask how much it costs. I said, I want one. So she named the plane, of course, she named it the Meriwether and she decided that the interior of the Meriwether just wouldn't do. And of course, she redecorated it to be like a living room. So she was very comfortable now being a jet setter, literally. So together, they were um, printing
1: money, living together. They um, started patronizing a major ballet company, although uh, Marjorie had a lot going on and largely left the ballet company business to her husband. She was also involved in creating a National Capital Center for the Arts. Later, of course, it would be called the Kennedy Center. Not now, since Kennedy is, you know, (laughs) not yet in the picture. She retired from General Foods, General Foods that had been printing money. And I mean, there's like no way to get to the end of the money that General Foods is giving her. She can't rest for five minutes and took over as a board of directors at a bank. (laughs) She's a busy lady. She had philanthropy. She had meetings, events, publicity, speeches, strategy meetings. I mean, she does more in a day than I would do in a month.
0: I know. This was an exhausting life. as
1: far but as One place she never bothered to help or exist in or be around or think of was her old stomping ground of Battle Creek. She would always say that's Layla's territory. But, you know, she just right. gave Layla that area. But in fact, Layla had died decades ago. And in a stroke of perfect timing, the people in Battle Creek reached out to her and she was just feeling it. I don't know. Sometimes you just got to catch her at the right moment and asked her if she could donate a stadium for football games. And they would name it the CW Post Stadium. Now, she was a sucker for things named after her father. That was the way to her heart. And sure enough, she did. She donated and she went above and beyond what they had ever expected. And the dedication, which she came to, was like old home week. People were so awed and so happy. And so was she. She watched the whole football game in her furs (laughs) (laughs) and loved it. And what I love about this, this group of about 20 high school students had been kind of um, nominated or volunteered to, you know, hold umbrellas over her and her husband's head. They would bring her hot drinks and fetch her blankets and like explain rules of the game and just basically be her companions during the event. And she did not forget them. And she hosted them later to this extravagant tour of Washington, D.C. It's so funny. Like if people tickle her, she will just bend over backwards to remember Mm -hmm. them and help them. I love it. Right.
0: Yes, I'm with you completely.
1: Marjorie had employed a private secretary named Margaret Voigt that increasingly people were kind of afraid of. Margaret Voigt, kind of like Emily in The Devil Wears Prada, was kind of a terrifying force in the outer office, you know? And Margaret started to kind of vet who could go in and out, who would get their phone calls through, and kind of like abuse her power a little bit. And oh my gosh, her husband, Herb, hated this private secretary. And it was mutual. He ran afoul of her by questioning her authority on something and by coincidence, question mark, incriminating photos of Herb landed on Marjorie's desk, in which Herb was indisputably um involved at Mar-a-Lago, I'm trying to put this, with young men in a state of nature. <laughs> That is I think as far as I can go in a PG rated podcast her husband was a homosexual. What? said Marjorie. Did you not know? said her daughter. Everyone knows that. And oh. so Marjorie was a little bit bewildered. Like what why didn't people tell me? And her daughter said, "Well, you know, everyone figured, well, people are 71 and grown-ups and if they have an arrangement who are we?" Right. You know, like right. what? said Marjorie. What? She was really bewildered. And she did divorce him. But, you know, I think it's fine if everyone knows, like her daughter said, if everyone knows ahead of time, Mm -hmm. Merry Christmas. Have a life. (laughs) But like to keep something that big from your spouse is not on, you know, that's Mm -mm. not good. And so she was always supportive of him and, uh, you know, paid his medical bills for the rest of his life, was extremely close to his four adult children, never held a grudge. But but this came out of of nowhere. And a couple of her really close friends used to mock her like, you are not a good picker. And She said, ain't it hell? Like she knew. Yeah. Like, yes, brother, I know. So Marjorie decided that she was going to focus on one of her first loves, and that is philanthropy. And in addition to her work with the Red Cross and the World Wildlife Fund and the creation slash initiation of the Palm Beach Fine Arts Festival, there was a very specific charity that I would like to call out that is so personal during the Vietnam War, which, of course, we know was extraordinarily unpopular here at home, sometimes the soldiers and other fighting men would come home and find a tepid, if not hostile, reception. And Marjorie hosted quite a few of them at Hillwood.
0: You know, it wasn't just the garden parties, which were more than enough. She also would buy tables for service members At any of the benefits that she was involved in that were around town. So these men and women could go to these highfalutin parties on her dime as her guest. I just want to quote one Marine who had been brought
1: to Hillwood to recuperate. You have no idea what it was like to be recovering from an injury in a war where nobody cared about you and then taken to Hillwood. You mean she has all this, nothing to worry about, but living it up and she still cares about us guys? It like touched them to the core. And that's Marjorie. Mm -hmm. You know, I do. I have all of this, but functionally, I would like my money and all of my good luck to work for other people. And I do think if we take nothing else away from Marjorie, that is her legacy.
0: She had other legacies too, very large legacies, specifically Mm -hmm. her houses, her estates. She entered this phase in the late 60s where she started to plan for where things were going to go, what she wanted her properties to become after she was gone. She had a vision of Hillwood Estate going to the Smithsonian as a museum And the Smithsonian was actually on board with this for quite a while. Unfortunately, the whole deal kind of fell apart when Marjorie said, the only stipulation I give is that you cannot serve food inside Hillwood. If you're going to have a party, you have to have a tent outside. I just think that guests won't respect the furniture and items inside the house as much as if I were here. And... It's speculated that it was because of that that Smithsonian kind of backed out of the deal. Well, also, the maintenance
1: costs were extraordinarily heavy.
0: The Hillwood estate was given back to the Post Foundation, and it is currently a museum run by that foundation that has so many of her wonderful treasures on display for all of us to see. And it's a wonderful museum. Even though I've never been there, I can tell you that.
1: Because in our media section, we will give you a link to a virtual tour.
0: She also had this other little property down in Palm Beach, Mar-a-Lago. Her thought first was to give it to the state of Florida. And at first they were like, yeah, this would be great. And then they realized how much it was going to cost to upkeep it. And they kind of did a little backward dance, like, thanks, Marjorie, but no. And then she decided, all right,
1: I'm going to deed it to the country of the United States of America. And and it can be the president's winter retreat. It could be the winter White House. The irony is not lost on me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But alas, again, well. The government was like, that is a lot to take on. Um, Thanks, but no thanks.
0: She got so close with that one. Nixon was ready to sign on to it. And then something happened to Nixon. (laughs) Do we know what that is?
1: Yes. Hint, it's not good.
0: (laughs) She did have one success in giving away her properties, the Adirondacks Estate Top Ridge. She decided to, and they accepted, give it to the state of New York as a governor's retreat. That one, during her lifetime, actually happened. Unfortunately, after her death, Topridge was sold by the state of New York to a private owner for $911 million, and it is currently owned by a mega-wealthy Texan who actually restored the camp and built onto it. So it's kind of living a life now that it was intended for when Marjorie took it over. (laughs) Well, you know, we're one for three. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, Marjorie's health began to fail in the early 70s. Many health concerns, her hearing, in fact, had been failing for years, and she and her doctors thought it was probably the result of some kind of virus that she had obtained all the way back in Russia. So her hearing had been going for a long time, but then she suffered a series of strokes and perhaps even a heart attack. She started forgetting people a little bit. And her daughters and some of her granddaughters moved in with her, and Marjorie became very angry at the restrictions that her failing body was putting on her spirit. On September 10th, 1973, Marjorie spoke her last words to her eldest daughter, Adelaide, you've always been a comfort to me. And two days later, on September 12th, 1973, Marjorie Meriwether Post died of cardiac failure.
0: She was 86 years old. At her funeral, 1,200 people attended the service, but per her wishes, she was cremated. And it wasn't until a year later when her ashes were placed in a pink granite pedestal in Hillwood's Rose Garden. Her will was read...
1: And her estate totaled around $117 million in 1973. That's $682 million today, which was mostly divided among her three daughters, like the bulk of it. But I assure you, charities received a lot. There were lots of personal bequests of a smaller nature. Also, money was left to maintain Mar-a-Lago. Money was left to the Smithsonian. In 1981... Years after her death, as we all know by now, real estate tycoon Donald Trump bought Mar-a-Lago and later referred to it as the Winter White House, which you could not write in a movie. (laughs) Something else to say about that. Long, long ago, the United Kingdom had granted Joseph Davies, this is husband number three, the right to display his own coat of arms. And it was displayed all the way through Mar-a-Lago. And so when Mr. Trump bought Mar-a-Lago, he took that crest and placed it on a lot of his properties, his golf clubs, etc. And he cannot use that coat of arms in Britain because they take that very, very seriously. That is not his coat of arms to use. However, in America, he has trademarked it for his personal use. As to Marjorie Merriweather Post... I think it is admirable that she always kept her focus on giving, on the humanity of everyone around her. She was a woman who was admired as a monarch and had the common touch.
0: Oh, that is lovely.
1: And now it is time for media.
0: And as always, we start with books. The primary biography that I used was American Empress, The Life and Times of Marjorie Merriweather Post by Nancy Rubin. It came out in 1995, but it seemed to be very detailed in her life. I I enjoyed it as a biography. Um, I don't know what else to say about it.
1: It is very giant. You could press flowers in
0: it. Yeah, I did listen to it. I I've been losing weight walking.
1: <laughs> oh, that's cool. Okay. I bet that's yeah. really long. Woo. Yeah, it was yeah, it was, I think, 16 hours. And well, there's a couple other biographies that I was able to get a hold of. Sometimes libraries can get a hold of things that you just, you know, you don't know where they came from. But um there's a book called Marjorie Merriweather Post, The Life Behind the Luxury by Estella Chung. And also Heiress, The Rich Life of Marjorie Merriweather Post by William Wright. Now, that lady, Estella Chung, who wrote that first biography, also wrote a book called Living Artfully at Home with Marjorie Merriweather Post. Now, this subject, more than any other, leads you to like entire rabbit hole books. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: Do you have any of those rabbit hole books? I do. And I did love looking at her life from different, like through a different lens. So through kind of a green lens, the one I liked was A Garden for All Seasons by Kate Markhart and Photography by Eric Kovalsvic. It's a beautiful coffee table book. and It is of the seasons at Marjorie's Hillwood Estate Museum in Washington, D.C. So every season has a section and it's the gardens during those seasons. I loved it. Another
1: book from the Hillwood Estate and Museum. Spectacular. Gems and jewels from the Marjorie Merriweather Post collection, and I bet that's one you can buy at the gift shop. Yeah, like sure. um, like we said earlier, this woman had a spectacular collection of jewels, some of which she carted down to the officials of the Smithsonian in a brown paper grocery bag, <laughs> <laughs> like they were so many pounds of potatoes. Um, (laughs) So they're there and they are treated with much more respect in this book and at that museum.
0: (laughs) I have another one. These Hillwood Estate people have a lot of books out on her, I believe. Through a fashion lens, there's another coffee table book. It's called Ingenue to Icon, 70 Years of Fashion from the Collection of Marjorie Merriweather Post. And it was created by a team at the Hillwood Estate Museum and Gardens. And they were... photos of the clothing that Marjorie wore that's on display at the museum, along with her biography of where she wore that. So it's her Mm -hmm. biography. And there's this she wore this dress when she was traveling with her dad. And this is her first wedding dress. And so it tells her life story through her clothing. I thought that was great.
1: And I'm not going to mention him here. But there's, you know, if you would like the history of Stalin, please feel free. I'll give you a link. I'm just saying I read a lot of background material for this that maybe I didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of side reading, I really loved this book. It's called The American Plate, A Culinary History and 100 Bites by Libby H. O'Connell. It kind of covers the history of um, like ingredients and surprising facts about common foods that we know. Anyway, I just loved it. Kind of cleansed my mind of all of the reading about
0: Stalin. So I highly recommend it.
1: Not just for that reason, but because it's a fabulous
0: book. And as we go on to things on the internet, the Hillwood Estate Museum and Gardens is the motherlode of information on Marjorie. They actually have an app. I downloaded it and it will give you a tour of the estate with narration. So it's, you know, like when you get the audio tours, but there's photographs to go along with it. So you can actually tour the estate from wherever you have your phone. That's very cool. Yes, I don't think I have ever seen a museum with a virtual tour like this museum has. Hmm. I was so impressed by it. You can actually, once travel is open everywhere, cruise on the sea cloud. That would be the Hussar 5, the big one. It is part of a luxury cruise fleet. And you can cruise from Greece to the Canary Islands and the Caribbean. It sounds amazing. Now, there are two different tour companies that advertise the same ship. So I'm not actually sure how that works, but I'll give you the links to everything. And at the very least, you can just dream of what it would be like to be on this ship because there is lots of photographs on their website. The Hussar 4 was later renamed the Mandalay, and it had been used as a charter boat. So you could also go on cruises on that. Unfortunately, the company that was running that and that owned it had to fold due to COVID. You know, they lost too much money and they had to fold their business, which is really sad. So I don't know where the Mandalay is right now. But if you're looking for a luxury yacht, it might be on the market soon. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, I have a site where you can see post ads of days gone by with their dubious health claims and shock journalism I have also got a link um, where you can hear the story of those Marie Antoinette earrings How they came to be, what happened to them, their provenance, etc Also, a timeline of Jello flavors from 1897 to the present, which I found very interesting. In fact, you know what? I'm going to read you this right now while I got it because it is very interesting to me. Okay. We didn't talk about this earlier, but okay. So in 1953, General Foods bought Kool-Aid. In 1957, they got Tang. In 1959, Hostess Cakes of our childhood. Um, They bought Burger (laughs) Chef, which is hilarious to me. Javalia in 1971, which is at least two decades older than I thought that was. (laughs) Uh, And then in 1981, O-S-C-A-R-M-A-Y-E-R came into the family, followed by Kraft in 1990. And then just recently in 2015, Kraft has merged with Heinz. So hooray. (laughs) (laughs) We had some big bats here swinging. So um, Marjorie's legacy remains strong. So I just wanted to tell you like what went on after our story. The Hillwood Museum has a channel on YouTube just called Hillwood Museum, and uh, they have videos of experts giving presentations on a lot of different topics. Um, Estella Chung, who wrote two of the books that we used, can be found in uh, a specific link we'll provide you, but you can just follow the rest of the channel for a lot of conversations. That's pretty cool.
0: I saw one of the ones they had, and it was about Marjorie in Paris. Talk about being very specific. (laughs) But it showed a lot of the items that she had bought in Paris now, what they look like. And they talked a little bit about, you know, where when she was there and any stories related to them. So there's like a whole sea of information that the Hillwood Museum has put For us out on the internet
1: and do not miss here is a strong repeating recommendation whatever channel you find it on uh, I am not certain it varies by market I do believe but please try to catch the history channels show the food that built America you will not be sorry right from the beginning you will see CW post and Dr. Kellogg (laughs) and their um rumble in the cereal streets of Battle Creek on up through the history of the food that made America. You'll see Heinz, you'll see Kraft in there. I don't think we get Toll House cookies. That's interesting, but we do get Hershey. Right, yeah, Hershey.
0: Yeah, the first, I think the first three episodes of the series are the ones that touch on anything we talked about with Marjorie. It did come at it as a very pro-Kellogg angle. So after I had watched that first, And I was like, C.W. Post is kind of a jerk. But then when I read more stuff, I was like, "Okay, I can go back and buy Post cereals again. (laughs) I didn't know what to do. My loyalties were torn. Right. They do come down on the side that Post lifted those
1: recipes wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. from the Kellogg Kitchen. So I'm just telling you both views are out there. So we were not there. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's all we're saying. But yeah, that whole series is just glorious and we, we highly recommend it.
0: I was watching the last one deals with the McDonald brothers, you know, of McDonald's. And I came mm-hmm. running downstairs after I watched it. And I stood in front of the TV where my family was watching sports. And I'm like, Wait, how do I make this clean? Ray Kroc was such a jerk. <laughs> they're like, what are you talking about? And then I like rattled it off really fast. And they're like, OK, great. Could you move? <laughs> they weren't as excited about it as I was. <laughs>
1: There is, um, unrelated to Marjorie Meriwether Post, but very related to what Susan just said, there is a movie starring Michael Keaton uh, as Ray Kroc called The Founder. And if you wanted to punch the guy from The Food That Built America, you might want to get out your kicking feet for this guy. <laughs> yeah, Not good. It's uh, almost two hours of that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good movie. And I did learn a lot, but man, did he take advantage of their good natures, I mm-hmm. think.
0: Yeah. And their inability to see his vision. Yeah.
1: Well, but not everyone has vision for big leaps of faith either. So right. I guess I and can't they, really blame
0: them. No. And they were doing really well because they were, you know, giving seminars on how to create fast food, you know, in right. any restaurant to Taco Bell. I mean, if it wasn't for them, Taco Bell wouldn't be. In existence, I guess.
1: A world without crunch wraps? I can't imagine. So there is also the Heinz History Center, which is online. It is uh, affiliated with the Smithsonian. And there is a Heinz exhibit uh, featuring 150 years of this company's products. And so as Heinz sort of got folded into the General Foods family, you might find that interesting. Also, you know, very, very familiar product. So,
0: I mean, just think all those products had a story like Clarence Bird's Eyes, you know, they all had some kind of story behind them.
1: Well, okay. You want a fun fact? Let me give you a fun fact about Hines that ties into our, well, you know what? We've never actually had an episode on the 1893 World's Fair, but it seems to come up a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hines, much to his dismay, um, had either misread the map or just didn't win the luck of the draw. And his exhibition was kind of far away from major attractions, like tucked in the way back of an agricultural building. It's just like cucumbers, right? And tomato stuff, you know. So they didn't give him a prominent location and he was bummed. So he printed these little cards and they said, free souvenir at the Heinz display and he like distributed them like the king of the may just <laughs> leaving them on tables dropping them on the ground you know just leaving them everywhere to try to drive traffic and when people got there hundreds of thousands of people came um and tasted the food and got familiar with the name and then they got a little charm like um for their charm bracelet that was a pickle. (laughs) Nice. Those were so popular that he made little pins. Mm -hmm. Remember in our Aunt Jemima episode, those little pins, everyone loves those little pins. And the Heinz pickle pins are still a giant collector's item. So food history is American history, I think. So there's that.
0: That's cool. I failed to mention this. It ties in with the World's Fair At the 1900 Paris Exposition, Marjorie and her father went there when she was younger as part of their travels when she was growing up. And I couldn't find the actual evidence of it. But the chances are really, really good that Marjorie Merriweather Post, as a young girl, could have been watching Loie Fuller perform. I know. I didn't have a way to, like, slide that in when we were talking about it. But I'll just throw it in here. It's media. It's just the, the name dropping in this episode was crazy. Well, she knew everyone, kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah, yeah. And who she didn't know, she bought their jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so cool. Um, I really don't have anything else.
1: All right. And in closing, I would like to read a quote from American Empress by Nancy Rubin. The obligation to help others less fortunate than herself was permanently stamped into Marjorie Merriweather Post's soul. Thousands would never know it was Marjorie who was responsible for their well-being, soldiers who survived World War One in the Number 8 base hospital in France, children who were saved from starvation in her soup kitchens, Russian's who benefited from her Soviet war relief drives in World War II, Boy Scouts, who played in camps she had created, music lovers who attended the National Symphony, housewives who were freed from the chore of canning food, and students who received anonymous scholarships to colleges were objects of Marjorie's largesse. These men, women, and children were Marjorie's proudest legacies far more than the chalices, Fabergé eggs, and gem-encrusted dishes of Imperial Russia she displayed in her Washington home. Marjorie would have made her father proud. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, you know the drill. Leave a review for us on your favorite podcatcher. Also, perhaps you might soon be able to listen to us within your Facebook app. We are testing it tonight to see if it works. Um, we're a little technologically challenged, so I hope that it will go through. That will be very convenient. I really would be very interested in hearing about your Jell-O recipes. I just ran across the fact that Jell-O used to be made in a coffee flavor in 1917, and I'm actually kind of intrigued by that. So I might try to make a coffee Jello ring full of whipped cream. That actually sounds good, right? So maybe I'll start with that instead of the Bloody Mary aspic <laughs> and see how that goes. So I guess share those in the Facebook lounge. All you need to do is go to the Facebook page and where it says join group, hit that button and we will let you in. It's like a little doorbell. Don't forget to check out our Pinterest board for links and photos for all of our subjects, including Ms. Marjorie Merriweather Post. And you can banter with Ms. Susan over at The History Chicks with an X on Twitter. The song in the middle, once again, is Oatmeal Cereal by the Park Street Trio. And the end song is In the Hands of Money by Spoons. We'll see you next time.